0: I'm Autumn Lockett,
1: and this is Mitch Randall,
0: and you're listening to Good Faith Weekly.
1: Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up and talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in the world, and then we've got two very special interviews this week. One is addressing the anti-trans bill that the state of Texas passed a few weeks ago. Autumn and I sat down with Dr. Cheryl and David Pooler from Baylor University as we talk about this... Terrible, terrible bill that has been passed and now being implemented all across the Lone Star State. And then at the end of the podcast, we sat down with author David Hawley, whose new book, Changing Your Mind Without Losing Your Faith, is fascinating because how many of us have come to a point in faith where we've changed our mind about a particular issue, but we have struggled with our faith? And he gives us a way how we can embrace both. So it's a great interview. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good pod.
0: Rainforests, volcanoes, coastlines with crystal blue water, fresh fruit and seafood. Join Good Faith Media for an immersive experience on Hawaii's Big Island. Discover brilliant night skies with our friend, astrophysicist Paul Wallace. Explore and have fun with your small group of adventurers. Join us May 21st through the 28th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org.
1: Autumn, how are things in your neck of the world? Hey, we're gonna get snow. It's March, and we're gonna get snow this weekend. What's going on?
0: We, are, I don't know. It's also the tomorrow is the first day of my kids' spring break. So,
1: um, <laughs> well, of course, if, it the is. We,
0: if the weather could get the hint, they could at least play outside. That would be lovely.
1: Uh, uh, spring break, kids outside. Mother Nature, no, we want to put you Maybe back so inside. I. <laughs> no. Oh goodness! Uh, well, I hope you and your family have a great spring break uh next week. We had two incredible set downs this week uh, with mm-hmm. Dr. Cheryl and David Pooler, as well as David Hawley and his new book. um so I mean, both of these interviews were dis- were uh unique and uh, inspiring. What stood out to you? I mean, you are a Texas native, Autumn. So, tell us, especially about the Puller interview and this anti-trans bill that the state of Texas has passed and now being implemented. What was your response uh, after our interview?
0: I thought it was really um, it was really interesting to hear people who are experts in the fields of child mental health, of healthy families, of social work, and also our faith-based people at a faith-based institution. It was interesting to hear them sort of cut just right through all of the fluff of this bill, people asking why, like, what's so harmful about you know, tra- helping trans kids be who they are? And they just cut right through all of it and said, it's politics. It's just politics and not, it's just politics in a way like, oh, it's not going to hurt anyone, but there is no, there is nothing good about this. It is not trying to come from a good place. It is just trying to be more polarizing and add more little, you know, tick marks on, on sort of the political spectrum. That's all this is.
1: And it's mean. I mean, it is just flat mean mean. because I mean, we think about these kids and their families and they've been living their lives. Many of them. Uh, Going through a transition uh, for gender identity quietly and privately, and now all of a sudden the state of Texas has somehow empowered the rest of the citizens to, if they have suspect, to turn them in and to call them out and to limit physicians who are making uh, health decisions in correlation with these families. Mm You know, Not letting them do that. We've already got word across the state of Texas that Children's Hospital has ceased any kind of treatment uh, with trans kids. And we've got an article out uh, this week uh, by uh, somebody from Baylor Social Work, Where the Poolers Actually Teach. Uh, Kendall Ellis writes this beautiful piece about how to respond to disaster trauma. And Mm -hmm. she's talking about everything that's gone in the world for the last you know, two years, beginning with the pandemic and the social uprising and the insurrection and the presidential election. And now we're going right out of a pandemic to a potential, you know, hopefully not a global war, but certainly a European conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And all of this trauma is just, just beating us down. And so all of these kids have been going through this, and now all of a sudden, instead of the state of Texas and other states similar trying to help their citizens, they're just adding more trauma, more trauma Mm -hmm. onto these people, and it is infuriating. So our interview with the Pullers is just really enlightening. It's inspirational because they give us some tools in how we can help trans people and trans families. So I hope you stay tuned for it. And then our interview with David Hawley. I mean, Autumn, you and I grew up in fundamentalist churches, right?
0: We put the fun in fundamentalism.
1: (laughs) I don't know how fun it was, but uh, we were certainly (laughs) fundamentalists. And uh, Dr. Hawley, in this book, uh, Changing Your Mind Without Losing Your Faith, does a fabulous job talking about as we mature in our faith, those who are seeking a deeper understanding and praxis of their faith. There are times when that occurs, that there's a crisis of faith, Because what we've grown up learning does not correlate with our maturity and our rationality and our understanding of Scripture in a more mature uh, way of of looking at the the Scriptures and the text and our faith. But he does a great job of of basically giving people permission to question and to think And that those do not mean that you have to lose your faith, that you can keep your faith while all the time being inquisitive about the Bible and about these issues and what they mean for your faith today. I just, David was just, he was a wonderful interview as well.
0: I I completely agree. And just that, you know, that challenge to all of us to be willing to change your mind. You know, in mean, the Bible, God God changed their mind. It's okay for us to change our minds, too. Yeah.
1: So these two interviews are absolutely wonderful, and uh, we hope that you stick around for both of them because uh, the Poolers and uh, Professor Hawley have just done a great job uh, outlining these particular topics. And uh, next week, just so you know, Autumn and I are already starting to book uh, European pastors. Uh, we're hoping to talk to Alan Donaldson. Uh, next week to talk about what the European Baptist Federation is doing in response to the crisis uh, in Ukraine. And then we're also hoping to talk to a pastor uh, in Poland about the refugee uh, re- response that, that, that Poland is providing these refugees coming across the border, which is, I think, stands at almost 2.5 million people now. So um, so it's going to be a good uh, podcast next week. But until we get there, make certain you tune in and listen to the pullers and Professor Hawley because they do a great job. Stay tuned.
2: Marvel at Pacific Coast Wells. Wonder in rainforests. Explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join
3: Good Faith Media for a unique and immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org.
1: Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we've got two very special guests with us all the way from Waco, Texas. Dr. Cheryl Pooler is a licensed clinical social worker and has more than 20 years of experience in community mental health as a therapist and psychosocial rehabilitation specialist for adults with serious and persistent mental illness. In 2009, she accepted a social work position with Waco Independent School District in the Homeless Outreach Department and was the co-founder of The Cove, a teen nurturing center for homeless youth. Dr. Pooler joined the faculty at the Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, in 2017 as a full-time lecturer. Dr. David Pouler is a professor of social work at the Garland School, where he has been there the past thirteen years. He works with people with complex trauma and is an MDR trained therapist. Dr. Pouler studied clergy sexual abuse for adults, and is an advocate for survivors of religious-based trauma and abuse. And we've asked them to join us this week at Good Faith Weekly because the state of Texas has recently passed a law that is targeting trans children in particular, but it is an anti-trans bill and it has caused havoc all across the state of Texas. And so we appreciate both of you joining us at Good Faith Weekly. So with the introduction out of the way, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you for having us here. Yes, thank you very much.
1: Well, Cheryl, let's start with you. Uh, Can you educate our listeners? Because... I lived down in Texas for about 15 years. Autumn was born and raised in Texas. And Howdy. so <laughs> we realized that, you know, Texas is a little bit insular and they don't think of anybody outside the state. And anybody outside the state should know what's going on in the state of Texas. But we've got a lot of listeners outside, uh, all across the country. And so, can you give us a brief synopsis of what this bill actually does?
4: The bill is um in short is going to require agencies and professionals and individuals who are mandated reporters to report parents or I'm I'm assuming even medical or educational individuals who acknowledge um and support trans youth in a way so that if there is a parent who is um, acknowledging their their child's pronoun or maybe they're changing their birth certificate or they're uh, selecting hormone therapy. That These are all reasons that could be and would be expected to be reported to Child Protective Services and viewed as child abuse um, against the, the trans child um, that the, the parents are abusing them by supporting them or the doctor is support, you know, or the nurse or the teacher or whoever is supporting that youth. Um, And and as a social worker, I am a mandated reporter, so I too could be reported for child abuse.
1: Oh, my goodness. So I appreciate you giving us that synopsis. And we're going to get into the ramifications of the bill here in just a moment. But David, what in the world is the motivation behind this bill?
3: Honestly, I can't see anything other than politics,
2: Mm.
3: honestly, um, to sort of drum up support by sort of focusing on a small percentage of the population as sort of the enemy or the problem. And that just deeply disturbs me. So I think it's politics. It's certainly not the actual care and concern for actual people's well-being. That clearly cannot be at the center of this.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So, so Cheryl, you said that you as a social worker could, you know, be reported for even – am I getting this right? Like even using a child's preferred
4: pronouns, you, you could be reported for that? My understanding is that the uh, legislation could go – to that extreme. I do not know where everything has landed. I don't know that anyone knows exactly where this has fully landed at this time. Um, The proposed legislation was primarily targeting, though, this very vulnerable population and the um, essence of everything that any of us who are professionals or the parents understood from it is we would be um, reported as abusers.
0: Mm. So, David, what do you see as the ramifications for this bill?
3: Yeah, I think you know it's way too early to sort of see where this is going to land, so to speak. As Cheryl's just saying, um, I think that there's just going to be pushback. I just cannot imagine that this is going to be allowed to move forward because what it would do. I mean, child protective services, child welfare. Here in the state of Texas is already burdened Mm -hmm. with dealing with child abuse. And then to add something like this in, which goes against what the literature is suggesting or best practices for serving trans youth. Like, does that make sense? It's it's gonna Mm -hmm. just complicate and frustrate many, many professionals. And I think many, many professionals are gonna have to make sort of decisions about their own ethics around do I support the actual law? versus what I know to be good and right and what the science is telling me and what, for me, at least as a social worker, what competent, competent practice would look like. Competent practice would not be in any way affirming this new law that's, that the you know, governor has put forth.
1: Okay. One of the ramifications that we do know of, I think as of today or yesterday, is that the children's hospital across Texas have ceased to provide uh, uh, hormone therapy for transitioning uh, children who have made this decision be- with their families and physicians. What is star- startling to me is the hypocrisy of those who are advocating for this bill because. On one, in, in one breath, they talk about the importance of parental authority and parental involvement in their children's lives. But then when it comes to their medical decisions uh, and decisions made between them and their physicians, then they want to get involved and they want to control what parents do and what physicians do. Um, what are you hearing on the ground about how this is affecting transgender People and parents of transgender kids, Cheryl.
4: I um I've recently had two conversations with um, friends who have teenage children who are uh, transitioning right now, and one is in the process of beginning to consider hormone therapy. The other one has not had hormone therapy, but did change pronoun, birth certificate, and um, um, pronoun in their name they changed their name so okay um parents i feel like are are concerned for their child's safety because bullying is already such a huge they issue. were already
0: concerned about
4: that right is already and and now parents would be targeted as well you mm-hmm. know um and and it just is so disheartening that we uh who claim to value human life that we are putting people in harm's way that is for this legislation to go through and to be carried out is knowledgeably and i mean it is intentionally putting lives at risk and children and youth who are already vulnerable at at an even greater risk it is this It is mind-blowing to me.
1: So, Cheryl, as a therapist and clinician, I mean, these kids and these families have already gone through so much without even being in the spotlight and to make the decision that they have made. And what kind of trauma is this putting on these kids and these families when their state government is telling them? What their parents are doing to them, in the words of the attorney general is child abuse.
4: I can only imagine how confusing and frustrating this would be uh, as a parent. Um, um, I've had to deal with lots of things as a parent. This is not an issue that's ever come up for me personally as a parent. I have walked alongside friends, you know, loved ones, family members, even we have but it is to get such mixed messages, because these, these decisions are not made in isolation. They're made with licensed therapists. They're made with doctors. They're made with parents who deeply love their children. And we all make decisions that we believe are best for our children. And so here we are trying to make all the right decisions with right professionals, doing things for what we believe is right for our child, and then this legislation is just kind of turning it upside down.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: It it has to just be so frustrating and disappointing. And David, it's and, and terrifying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And David, it seems like there is now a tendency by state governments who are controlled by primarily conservative politicians to pit citizens against one another. In Texas and Florida and other states across the country, we're hearing about this these legislations that are passed that basically deputizes citizens to tell on other citizens. Um, what what is going on there?
3: you know, in all honesty, I don't think in my lifetime I've ever seen anything like this, but you're right. I mean it, the word there yeah, it's sort of arming're you, average person with the ability to sort of not just level criticism but something possibly with legal teeth to bite into one another and i just i guess what what frustrates me the most is we're making enemies out of our own neighbors mm-hmm. and friends and family members and it does pit people against one another and it's deeply troubling i mean what is the motivation behind it? I don't know. I don't understand why that would be happening. It frustrates me. Um, My primary emotion is not just frustration, but sadness, Mm -hmm. and then maybe some anger on top of that, where ideally valuing and centering people and their experiences and their needs as important and figuring out ways to help people flourish. And yet, we're like picking on a subpopulation, a very small segment of our society, and elevating them and putting the spotlight on them as if they're they're evil or it's bad and these parents are bad for supporting their children. Um I cannot believe we're here in 2022. I just cannot believe it. I can't
1: either. And what is so damning about this particular bill is, and you mentioned it a moment ago, that it is isolating a small segment of the population. My question to those who passed and support this bill, why transgender children? Why didn't they go after gay children? Why didn't they isolate them? Not that they
0: should, not that we're advocating that, right? But that's a larger population, for sure.
1: Right, and it's, it's the potential of legislating morality based upon a skewed and very narrow theological understanding of the world. And it is terrifying, and it is something that every good person of faith should be standing against. And fighting for the repeal of bills similar to this. So that's our next question. What is going on in Texas that can possibly overturn this bill that's been passed?
4: I hope that conversation continues. Um, at, you know, at least we're talking. People are having conversations. Churches are having conversations. There's research at Baylor University around some of these topics that are um, that's happening, and I. school districts are also having to have these conversations. When I was a school social worker, um, trans youth were not an anomaly. They are very much present on every campus. And in every district, I dare say, there's probably someone who identifies. And so school districts have been figuring this out and managing it for many years. This is nothing new and so my hope is that some of the lived experience and the way that we've come through this with other very large groups of organizations who work with and deal with children will be able to come to uh let's everybody calm down let's mm-hmm. talk this through let's you know think about what's best for the child let parents make some decisions um i'm that's my that's my hope mm-hmm. and i've seen that happen um in here in Waco in our own school district where um you know we had some you know when the bathroom bill was a big deal at first um that came up and 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 Waco ISD immediately the, the superintendent um filed a solution that that took care of, of all of that it just it is school districts handled this without any issues. I'm not sure why I agree like why now what is what is the problem now because this Midterms. is not a new Midterm elections,
1: yeah, mm-hmm.
0: that's right. I think so. That's yeah. right. I think
1: that's- so, David, I- have you heard anything uh, from about the ACLU filing suit on behalf of trans parents and trans kids uh, violation of their constitutional rights?
3: No, I actually haven't um, stayed on top of the ACLU filing, but I'm not. I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised because that would just be sort of necessary. It's like any time there's some kind of draconian type of law that's going to exclude an already vulnerable group, the ACLU tends to get involved. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm glad about that. I wanted to go back to your question about why trans, and Mm -hmm. I think this is only a guess, but I think the more sort of different or unique a subpopulation is, the more that they're a target for otherness. Mm -hmm. And whereas for me as a person of faith, Inclusion and welcoming and protecting and making safe places for people is my priority. There are other people who the way they practice their faith is actually to exclude and marginalize and push out anything that's different or doesn't conform. Mm. And interestingly enough, I think in so many ways, Jesus was confronting Judaism of his day for setting up barriers and boundaries with people. And he was saying, no, you're drawing the line in the wrong place because the fact is God includes these folks. Mm -hmm. And I wish we could have more of those kinds of dialogues about who's included, which I think is everyone. And so, you know, going back to something much earlier, I think the layers of trauma that are going to be sort of inflicted on already, already vulnerable people who already have trauma is profound. I mean, this is, it's wrong. In fact, I would even say that this new bill would create child abuse instead, Mm. (laughs) because that makes sense. Well, yeah,
1: absolutely. By
3: neglecting and spotlighting and demonizing a group of people, there's a whole new layer of trauma for them and their families that should never, it's hard enough already. It, It takes so much courage to sort of come out and own, hey, I'm trans, and then for people around them to support them. That's so hard. And then Mm -hmm. to add this on top, it's criminal.
1: Absolutely. You know, David, uh, we appreciate any times one of our guests brings in Jesus to the conversation. uh, We think that's always (laughs) an important uh, uh, part of this conversation. But you're absolutely right. When Jesus was asked what the most uh, significant commandment there was, he said, love God and love neighbor. And he did not put any uh, limitations on that love of neighbor. In fact, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I can just imagine if he was teaching that lesson on the shores of Lake Travis down in Texas, he would have made the hero of his story a trans kid. And so it would be the yes. parable of the trans kid who was the helper with the Republican politician and the evangelical pastor passing by. So, you know, we're pretty they're vocal throwing about our. We're pretty vocal about our support of uh, our LGBTQI uh, friends and brothers and sisters. And so uh, we're pretty passionate about it. So, Cheryl, let's get down on the ground at ground level in communities. What. And people of good faith do to help trans kids and trans parents?
4: Um, make them your friends. They're your neighbors. Um, if you are identifying as most, or a majority, I would believe, of Texans do as the evangelical or the conservative Christian faith you have an obligation to your neighbor, your faith obligates you to that. And these are your neighbors. So get to know your neighbors and love your neighbors. And when you hear the stories of others and get to know them, and all of a sudden, it's not that stranger across the street, but it's somebody that you've grown to love and care about. I've seen this happen many times with our Cove youth where, you know, a youth will come in and, and within a matter of months, maybe they come out to staff, and they're surprised at how they're welcomed and loved and um, just bought in, you know, nothing is going to change. Our restrooms are all non-gendered. Our, we have, you know, volunteers who that's their specialty to come in and walk alongside youth who are asking those questions and dealing with those hard things. And so support them in ways, either, you know, support organizations and places that are providing resources to those youth. Put your money into those organizations because they need it. They're doing hard work, and they need people who are willing to, to donate, to volunteer, to advocate, to speak up and speak out. Um, All of those are things that people can do. If if I don't have money to write a check, then I have the time to volunteer, or I can speak up and use my voice. There's so many ways we can support our youth.
1: That is a great suggestion. David, do you have anything to add?
3: You know, I think there's still a lot of people who need, I'll I'll just sort of back up one step, which is I think we need to continue to educate ourselves. Mm. I think. It's time for people to step up and step out and begin to challenge our own thinking about things. I mean, I, in so many ways, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was calling out the humanity of people and how people who are black were being treated, and it sort of finally got to the hearts of white people, like, wait a second, this is wrong. I think in the same way, this it, somebody somewhere has to be saying, wait a second, maybe I have a conservative view. And maybe I don't quite understand this whole transgender thing, but mistreating people in this way, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just – I think there are ways that ordinary people can just open their minds a little bit and educate themselves. Um, and I do think that's what's so unfortunate about this bill is like when you demonize somebody, it sets st- up the walls. It's like, good, I don't have to think. I can just focus on them and they're bad. but yeah. I. It's time for us to evolve. It's time for us to move beyond that these binaries, and it's time to be more inclusive. So I think what Cheryl just said is fantastic. We're sort of on-the-ground practical strategies, and I would just invite people to learn more about someone who's trans, get to know someone who's trans, and learn more about transgender people.
1: Well, Dr. Cheryl and Dr. David, thank you so much for being with us today. It was an absolute delight. We know that you are fighting the good fight down there and spreading an inclusive gospel and just loving people for who they are, for simply who God created them to be. And we immensely appreciate that at Good Faith Media and Good Faith Weekly, and we applaud you. And if there's anything that we can do, uh, we would be glad to help. We have worked with Baylor students and faculty for several years now. And so if we need to come down and do a live broadcast uh, in Waco, let us know. We will get on the road and come down there. But thank you so much for joining us this week. Before we let you go, though, Autumn's got one last question for you.
0: Yes. We'll let you both answer this. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So as we close out this really important conversation, what is your more to tell? David, why don't you go first? And then Cheryl, you can you can close it up with a benediction for us.
3: Yeah, more to tell. Well, I'm gonna sort of broaden the conversation just a little bit. And I would just say there are so many ideas of how to proceed in life and sort of what's right and wrong that come out of our religious spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an enormous amount of harm done in religious spaces. And what I I think I would just ask and invite listeners is just just to be mindful, pay more attention, start trusting your intuition, start speaking up. The fact is, I actually think we need more dissenters um, uh, in our churches and in our faith communities. And I don't mean sort of radical rebels tearing the place to pieces, but I mean just people questioning, saying, is this really okay? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that might have hurt them. Or when you said that from the pulpit, that, that kind of, I don't know, there's something not okay. I mean, I, I guess that's my invitation. There's mm-hmm. always more to tell um, about um, just challenges in religious spaces and places around hurt. But that gives us then the opportunity to talk about healing. And I think this conversation about transgender youth um, sits right at the in the center of that. And I would just invite more of this. So I really appreciate you all for centering this and making this a priority for this interview.
1: Well said, David. Thank you.
4: Um, my answer to that question is a little slightly different take just because I love the history of the church and the history of our profession and social work. And this is just such an opportunity for the church right now to step up and be a part of healing and speaking up and advocating. And I'm looking forward to doing some research through Baylor with C3I on looking at what is the attitude of the church towards homeless youth. Um, We know that 150 years ago, um, homeless youth were treated very poorly, um, looked at very poorly. and the church did not do their due diligence um, in protecting them and making sure that they um, were treated as God's creation and God's children. And so how far have we evolved as a church around that? Let's look at that and see. Um, At the Cove, many, many churches want to jump in and volunteer and help. And sometimes help isn't the help that our youth need, because they have to have help that is not judgmental, not harsh, very welcoming, very open, um, and and also very understanding and willing to just walk alongside. And so my um, that would be my contribution as a benediction would be: this is an opportunity for the church, and so let's take a look at where we are in the body of Christ. Uh, you know, who are we, and and how do we value? youth in this Mm. in this um in this frame beautiful
1: if you are a student looking to explore the world of social work or you have a family member who's exploring getting into social work because of what you have just heard you need to check out garland school of social work at baylor university these two professors and lectures are outstanding and they are part of a great faculty down there at garland uh, Baylor University. And I would just, I wholeheartedly endorse the school and what they're doing down there uh, with Dean Singletary. It's just absolutely great. So uh, well done. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, Dr. Cheryl Poole, Dr. David Poehler, you are the best. Keep up the good fight.
3: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
1: And we want you to stay tuned because we'll have a, another guest uh, in our third segment for this week at Good Faith Weekly. And it's going to be a good interview. So stay tuned.
0: Check out Good Faith Reads, a short podcast from Good Faith Media about our books, conversations with our book authors, tips on writing a book, unique angles on good faith, and book publishing. We've got dozens and dozens of episodes. Good Faith Reads. We release two new episodes each month. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org.
1: Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, all the way from Round Rock, Texas. David Hawley taught philosophy for over 40 years in Kansas, Arizona, and Mississippi. His books include Meaning and Mystery, What It Means to Believe in God. And he has published numerous articles in professional journals on topics in philosophy and religion and ethics. David and Joyce are members of Peace of Christ Church in Round Rock. His latest book, Changing Your Mind Without Losing Your Faith, is written for people who are tempted to leave the church because the message they have been hearing has come to seem intellectually unacceptable, morally objectable, or spiritually demeaning. David, I can't wait to talk about your book. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly.
2: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, David, how are things down in Texas these days? Uh, uh, Our co-host here, Autumn, she's a Texas girl. She loves talking Texan to people.
0: (laughs) Sure do. <laughs> I won't have a g at the end of any gerund this whole interview. <laughs> uh,
1: things going well down there?
2: They they're, they're going well. Um I I've, I've just been out of town and uh was in uh, South Carolina, but I've got gotten back and uh I think we're about to get out of the cold weather
1: here. Good. 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 We're expecting snow here in Oklahoma at the end of the week. Hopefully that's going to be the last round of it. So before we talk about the book, uh, we've been asking all of our guests on this side of uh, the global pandemic, um, how'd you cope? Uh, Everybody, did you get out okay? Uh, Feeling good about where we are now?
2: I'm feeling better about where we are now. Still, uh, it, it seems strange to shake hands with people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, I was just at a conference where nobody was wearing masks and everybody was wanting to shake hands, and so I'm coming around, but uh, I, I still have some of the pandemic habits.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. We, uh, even at uh, a church this last week, they lifted their mask mandate within the church, they still encouraged it, uh, but it was weird seeing people walk around without mask. <laughs> I, like, told,
0: I, had, I told my husband I had to put my lipstick on. I was like, these lips haven't seen church in two
2: years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, David- congr- Yeah, go ahead. You have trouble recognizing people in their mask. Yes. Right, right.
1: That's exactly right. So. Well, David, congrats on the book. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is your audience because in the preface, you actually named three types of people for which you wrote the book—conservative Christians, progressive Christians, and people who have given up on Christianity altogether. So why did you decide to identify these three groups to address in your book? Hmm.
2: So this book is partly autobiographical. Hmm. Um, I grew up in very conservative Christian churches, and the churches where I grew up I was taught what we teach is just what the Bible says, and the Bible is a message directly from God. And uh, these were th- th- these were churches where uh, people became uncomfortable if you asked too many questions. And I, I apparently was the kind of kid who asked lots of questions. Mm. Uh, maybe around somewhere in my teenage years, I uh, I started uh, reading C.S. Lewis, and one of the things that that showed me was that it was possible to be a Christian and Ask some hard questions and to think about some hard issues. And then when I went away to school, um, I, I, I discovered that uh, I needed to rethink my faith in the light of what I was learning in class and what I was reading from other sources. And uh, I eventually found my way to philosophy. And philosophy was the kind of discipline that teaches you to not shy away from puzzles and also gives you some tools for dealing with puzzles. So um, the the book is really a kind of culmination of a lifelong attempt to understand Christianity in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been in conservative churches and I've talked to people who are um, not quite comfortable with the message that they receive, and so those are some of the people that I wanted to talk to. Um, I'm I'm currently in a church that describes itself as progressive and uh, what I, what I discover is there are lots of people in these churches who have given up on some aspects of the kind of faith that they were taught and are, are trying to make their way to a faith that they can believe in wholeheartedly. And so these were the audiences that I was thinking about as I as I wrote the book.
1: Well, I really appreciated you identifying those uh, three particular groups, especially those and and you you know self-identify in the book as as a progressive Christian, Um, and we would too here probably Good Faith Weekly, Um, but I appreciate you identifying all three, because I think it really sets the stage uh, and it reminds everybody that we are on this continuous journey. You know, we start with faith, but we're seeking understanding about our faith, and and it's never too late to rethink uh, our orthodoxies. So, uh, I appreciated you identifying all three, just not one. (laughs) I thought that that was a great reminder.
0: Right, and on that note, the book doesn't seem to be um, about changing people's minds on a particular issue. It's more of a roadmap for people who are ready to explore, seek deeper meaning and purpose for their faith. So in the church today, do you think we are failing to teach and, and model the process of a faith journey, a faith discovery, um, and sort of falling into a temptation of just drawing lazy conclusions and trying to win arguments?
2: That, that's that's a really good question. One of the things that, um, that I was aware of as I wrote this book is that there are things that uh, People who go to theological seminary know, but most of the people in the church don't know. And so uh, the things that people don't know, they can't use to shape their faith. Just just as an example, uh, the the second section of the book is about uh, interpreting the Bible. And among the things that I discuss are uh, the fact that biblical authors tend to make assumptions of their own time and place. And some of these assumptions are things that we don't uh, agree with. And then also, uh, I, I, I try to show that uh, biblical revelation is a kind of process that takes time, and sometimes later points in the process can be used to correct earlier understandings. And these are things that you probably don't hear much from the pulpit, but I think they're useful and helpful for ordinary lay people as they try to read the Bible to understand. Mm-hmm.
1: You identify two dangers for seeking to deepen your faith. The seeker's journey can cause some to lose their faith, you say, and others to double down to the point of dismissing any rethinking of faith. And this really spoke to me, David, because, you know, as as you—I grew up in fundamentalist churches. Uh, I went to seminary pretty much— you know, thinking I knew everything about the Bible because of what my pastors and leaders told me uh, that it was about. Uh, And then I I began this journey to discover that everything I had heard growing up may not be 100% accurate. And so I began on this discovery myself, and it really caused a crisis of faith for me. And so I appreciate you naming those two dangers. Why do you think it's important to recognize those two dangers for anybody who's seeking a deeper faith?
2: So so I think uh, both of the dangers I describe are things that people are actually tempted to. Uh, One of them I I call the the danger of firmness, and this this is the idea that my faith is fixed and can't change at all, and the problem with that view is that uh, if you can't change, you have to hide from yourself certain things, not read the wrong books, and not talk to people that it might change your mind about faith. And uh, it's actually hard, pretty hard, to hold on to a faith that you feel like you can't, uh, you can't re- revise or rethink anything. And, th- and then the other danger is just the, the sort of opposite one of your faith is so flexible that it's hard to say what the center is, and you don't have any places where you're willing to say this is where I, this is where I stand. This is something that I'm going to hold firm on. And uh, I argue in the book that a mature faith is somewhere in between the two. It's one that can change when you have good reason to think that you're wrong about something, but also not so wishy-washy that it's going to be no different from what a non-Christian would hold. Yeah,
0: Mm -hmm.
3: very
1: well put. Mm -hmm.
0: So in chapter 6, you discuss misplaced expectations. Um, In particular, you address the misplaced expectations people have toward the Bible. And we thought it was a wonderful chapter discussing the importance of developing a solid hermeneutic for which to read, interpret, and apply scripture. Why do you think there are so many misplaced expectations when it comes to reading and applying the Bible?
2: So so this is a chapter that's mostly about the fact that the Bible contains many genres. Mm -hmm. And Mm. you have to have literary sensibilities in order to recognize what kind of uh, genre you're reading some people who read the Bible and they, they think everything has to be considered as if it were a straightforward scientific kind of account of uh, what happened at a particular place in a particular time. And uh, I, I think that what you really need is some literary sensibilities to recognize that sometimes the Bible uses things like fiction or parables to communicate. Sometimes it uses poetry. Sometimes it uses um, theological. Shaped history, and sometimes it uses speculative stories. And um, if you if you have certain expectations, uh, you're you're going to probably misread some 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 biblical text. So uh, just a kind of awareness of uh, all all the different ways that the Bible might communicate.
1: You know, reading that chapter and working through it, and just now listening to your answer, I'm just reminded that churches have, and the church, the little C, have fallen into the trap of just giving people the Bible and teaching them you know, lessons from the Bible and how to apply those lessons. But we don't do that in any other discipline. I mean, when we think about how we teach our children to read uh, and comprehend, we don't throw Moby Dick at them and say, Here, go at it. <laughs> you know, we teach them You know about syntax. We teach them about types of genres of writing. We, you know, we, we do, we, we teach process to them to help them understand. So when they get Moby Dick in their hand, they can read it and understand it more fully. Um, my hope is that the church can make a turnaround and began to teach process again because it's one of the things i've learned over the last 20 uh, something years of being a pastor uh, working in local churches has been that a lot of people don't understand the complexity of the Bible they just think it's uh, you know a book a single book filled with stories that they can read and, and, and apply but when they're giving the tools to, to read it in its proper context it even elevates it for them it, it helps mm-hmm. them understand it more and they, they get more excited about reading it and, and how to apply it and, and it. It's very relevant for their lives right now. So I really appreciated this chapter. It was it was really well done. So let's move to section three, because you really get in a lot of trouble in section three, uh, David, <laughs> uh, because you challenge us to rethink uh, Christian teachings. You tackle topics such as Jesus' death for human atonement and even dare to ask the question what it means when we say that we are quote-unquote saved. Why do you think it's so important for Christians to rethink teachings that were burned into our little minds beginning at a young age?
0: With a felt board, no less.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So um, uh, I think there are multiple reasons why it's important to uh, examine Christian teachings, but let me just take the one about the death of Jesus. I was taught a particular way of thinking about the death of Jesus, and it was given to me as the way to think about it. And it wasn't until many years later that I realized this is a way that some people have thought about the death of Jesus. And it's a way that mostly comes from the writings of John Calvin. It's the idea that uh, Jesus endured punishment on our behalf and we'll just accept that. It will turn the wrath of God away from us. And I have come to think that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it was never something that was in my mature years plausible to me. And so I've discovered that uh, I, I needed to rethink the death of Jesus. And part of my th- rethinking, um, I remember being in a, in a church um, recently where I heard the pastor say, Jesus was born to die. Wow. And that struck me as just wrong. Yeah, right, right. Uh, it struck me as getting things backward. Jesus was born to proclaim the kingdom of God and to initiate a community that would— uh, live in accordance with his with his principles and his death was a consequence of performing his mission but it wasn't the reason for his mission and so in some ways i think we've got we've gotten it backwards mm. i try to argue that in the book yeah.
1: yeah and it was very well done i appreciated it immensely uh, so uh, david this book in my opinion gives people permission to rethink the orthodoxies of their faith and again, I ran up against this being a pastor for over 20 years and still run, uh, run against it today, that people are very weary about questioning teachings that they've held on to for a long time. Uh, they feel like they're doubting God or they're doubting the church. And they, there's a real fear of asking these questions that you're posing. Why do you think it's so important today, in today's context, for Christians to be given the permission to rethink, on um, to just basically rethink their faith or revision their faith?
2: So I'm in a, a church now where there are a lot of young people, and one of the things that I recognized is that young people are leaving the church in great numbers. Mm. And part of it is— uh, what they're hearing is a faith that they can no longer believe or no longer accept, and so they're 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 voting with their feet. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the choice is trying to hold on to something that may seem to you unbelievable, in which case you end up with a kind of pretense, or rethinking it in ways that do make sense. And and I think part of the part of the fear that you describe is a fear. Um, that's based on not being able to see alternatives to the views that you were taught. Mm -hmm. and So a big part of the book is to try to suggest there are alternatives. I I don't try to um, tell everybody where they should come down, though I do suggest uh, that some ways of thinking are better than others, and some options are better than others, and I uh, try to describe the ones that seem most plausible to me. But... um, if you can think about your faith as a kind of version of the Christian faith, but not the only possibility, I think that that can take some of the fear away. Yeah, I think
0: that's so true. And giving permission for that, because I think I also, you you and Mitch have both confessed to growing up in fundamentalist places, (laughs) which were great places to grow up, right? Solid foundation, like learn to love Jesus, and they truly taught me who, who Jesus was. And as I grew in my faith, I was dunked at age five. I mean, I've been at this for a while. (laughs) Um, you know, I would, I started to have my own relationship with Jesus and to follow him in a way. And what I heard a lot was, but not like that. No, Mm. not like that. Not like that. And so I think, I think what you're saying is so important to be like, Okay, like that. That's fine. Like, here's how I'm going to do it, but it's not the only way. And so I love that you give, you give folks permission to do that.
1: David, I'm going to give you over to Autumn here for, in just a moment. She's going to ask you uh, our final question that we ask all of our guests here at Good Faith Weekly. But before I do, I've got a very important question to ask you. It's about our colleague here at Good Faith Media, Zach Dawes. You and he Uh-oh. go to the same church. Uh-oh. Does he really go to church? Because we're kind of wondering.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, right now, really going to, to church is uh, difficult to define since our church services are mostly still on Zoom. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. And uh, we meet uh, in, in, in person uh, um, once a month, mostly. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, I, I can't I can't verify all of Zach's attendance.
1: Can you at least <laughs> verify that his name pops up in the chat room every now and again? Because. <laughs>
2: I will say that uh, Zach is now our church um, treasurer. Uh And uh, so I I work with him on a committee and uh, he shows up for (laughs) that. That's great.
1: We love Zach Dawes. We poke fun at him a lot, but he is such a, a wonderful human being and just a great asset to our program. So I'm so glad that he connected us and that we got to learn more about your book. Changing Your Mind Without Losing Your Faith. But before we let you go, David, uh, Autumn's got one last question for you.
0: Yes, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation and your book, uh, what is your more to tell?
2: I I, I guess what I'd say is that... um, Developing a faith is not something that you finish at a particular point in time, even, you know, even if you write a book on it, and even if you say what you think on that, it's a kind of continuing process. And it's something that uh, takes your whole, uh, your whole life. And uh, it's, it's important, I think, to be open to learning new things and to be willing to consider possibilities that you haven't considered. And even though I'm uh, retired and set in my ways, I still discover things that I hadn't thought about before, and uh, it stimulates me. And uh, I, I hope the book uh, stimulates people to continue thinking about their faith, um, and uh, that, it, that uh, it, it's not just uh, the thought that I've given them the final answers to everything, but uh, there's something that they can do. And it's also um Something that they can um, not think about just individually, but uh, as part of a community, and the realization that the Christian Church, uh, as as a whole, as a a need to rethink the faith in ways that make sense to people. Mm -hmm. I love that.
1: Well said, sir. David Hawley, his latest book, Changing Your Mind Without Losing Your Faith, is out right now. You can pick it up wherever you purchase books, and it is a wonderful read. I wholly, endure, entirely, and wholeheartedly endorse it. Uh, it's wonderful, and so you want to, as you turn off this podcast, uh, go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whoever and purchase the book, uh, because it is, it's a great read, one you'll want on your sh- shelf. David, thanks so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly.
2: Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
1: Good. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us each and every week. Autumn and I will be back next week uh, with another uh, wonderful guest. And until then, keep living good faith.